Today we're talking about tips for successfully using cover crops in heavy clay soils. And when you think about all the different conditions that soil, uh, that cover crops are used, all the different soil types. And last week we talked about in dry land areas with less than 20 inch rainfall. This is kind of almost an opposite type discussion here where we talk about heavy clay soils, which tend to be on the wet side. Uh, not always, but tend to be on the wet side. And one thing that's interesting when you think about the whole dynamic of cover cropping, and we talk about this routinely, is that there are certain principles that apply to almost any situation. Some of those big, uh, big picture type principles that, that we talk about. And so I'm not just copying, pasting from what I did last week, although there is some similarity there and there's some similarity with some other things. But we want to hone in here on heavy clay soils because I don't know what the percentages are out there, and there's a pretty broad definition of what heavy clay soils are. But we're talking about those soils that tend not to dry out as quick, uh, maybe are a little bit more difficult to manage, but they really shine when we get into the drier situations. If they're managed right, they can really hold water for a long time. And that helps them then produce some pretty impressive yields. So it's kind of, I'm just going to say this on the outset, it's kind of like knowing how to manage around some of the challenges in the context of cover cropping is what we're going to be focusing on today. And I want to give you some ideas of how you can do that. So again, I think, uh, feeding the biology is one of the key components we always need to think about with cover crops and certainly in heavy clay soils. And so when we think about feeding the biology, uh, basically the diversity of species is going to enhance that. I mean, you kind of, in a way, you get out of the system what you put into it. And I think that's important to be reminded of that. And then again, another very basic principle. We want to try to have something growing year around, and that is our goal, and that is what we want to try to do, and I want to give you some uh, suggestions of how to do that. But, again, water management is key, but here for heavy clay soils, uh, infiltration applies to almost every soil, but the drainage component, being able to drain them, but yet, in a, in, in, a, in a balanced way, having the soils be healthy enough so that they can actually hold water. So that's kind of a fine line, how that all actually works. But I'm just saying that cover crops is going to address that, and they're going to really, really help that dynamic of water infiltration, water storage, and water drainage. It's going to be better when you can get a, a cover crop planted or get having living roots in the in the soil uh, year round. So that's why it's just important to keep some of these concepts uh, in front of us as we, as we think about. So, but let's adjust some expectations here. Uh, just because you plant a cover crop doesn't mean your wet spots are going to instantly disappear or you'll be able to plant corn as soon as the snow melts on a heavy clay soil, okay? So I'm using this picture to make a point uh, that <clears throat> what is feasible uh, and, and so forth. And there's a lot of variability goes into that. I would say, first of all, just the what is your knowledge of your fields and what is your knowledge of growing cover crops? What is your experience? That's going to be a factor. And then what is the exact makeup of your soil? To what degree does it have the clay content? And that's that can go from muck soil all the way down to when you get into more of a balanced uh, soil, silty clay loam. So um, then the cropping history. And have you had weather that's been favorable? Let's face it. Let's just be honest. Uh, we're all promoting cover crops on here, but some years do not give you the opportunity that other years give you. And I think that is missing sometimes in some of our – uh, talks that we give that cover cropping is all about being an opportunist 
And when that time comes that you can get, uh, get a cover crop in the ground, uh, in a good, uh, in a good timely manner, when you have maybe a nice fall that the cover crop can grow and, and roots can go down deep. If that opportunity is given to you, then you want to be able to exploit that and use that. I mean, we kind of got a, a classic example here. Large portions of the country cover crops went in late last fall. And again, large portions of the country are still cold and wet. Cover crops have not reached their potential in the past six months like they will some years. And I think we just need to acknowledge that. Uh, that being said, a little helps. So we may not get big cover crop growth to work with this spring on a lot of areas. But that being said, we have something there, those of us that are planted, and uh you never know what the spring's going to give you. So if you don't have it planted in the fall, you'll never get that opportunity. So being an opportunist is is always important. So heavy clay soils are typically wet. And I'll, I'll just show this picture here that uh, kind of depicts that, uh, what we may see. And I'm sure there's a lot of fields right now look just like that. And uh, we're going to try to uh, how can we mitigate standing water? How can we dry out our fields a little bit quicker? How can we build resilience into the soil? Well, you guys know the answer. Um, it's uh, using cover crops and, and also, where possible, less tillage or no tillage. And, again, depending on where your soil's at, and I always got to say, where is your level of experience? Where is your level of expertise? Where is your level of knowledge on how your soils work? Uh, that's just really, really important and being able to do the proper management methods on the soil that you happen to manage. And, you know, if you're a crop consultant or a seed salesman, uh, anything like that, knowing and understanding the type of soil is important. And some of you are tired of hearing me say this, but you got to have a shovel. You have to dig the soil. You have to see how it's reacting. I would say right now, uh, if even today or as soon as you can, to go out and and just look at a soil where it's cover cropped and where it's not. What does it look like? What is the difference? Can you show other farmers the difference that it's making? Uh, can you just learn for yourself uh, what those cover crops are doing in your soil? That's the kind of thing that you have to do to be able to become an expert of that. And again, just what are you trying to achieve with your your situation? What is your challenge? Uh, this is a picture here of a, of a farmer in uh, south central Pennsylvania. Uh, and and his, his whole idea of planting these big cover crops here is to dry out his low ground, which is that heavier uh, to clay type soil. So here's a point you can jot down. He's waiting till later to plant these. He's allowing the cover crop to dry out the heavy clay soil. He's using the cover crop to accomplish what he's trying to do here, and that's really getting uh, the soil dried out. Now, I'll just say, again, when it comes down to being an opportunist and, and managing it, if there would be a abnormally dry spring, you would want to terminate this cover crop sooner so it doesn't take moisture away from your cash crop. So, again, that's a management issue that you would want to uh, employ there. But by and large, areas where there's a lot of moisture, this is a tactic to be able to, to use the cover crop uh, as, as a drying agent, if you will. And then I do know that where uh, uh, this is uh, Bob Peckman, where he lives, is it tends to – as normal, get get go through a two to three to four six week drought during the summer or without rain. Now that cover is going to also help him retain moisture in the soil. But even when you have a an ideal situation like you're seeing here, and I I can promise you it's not going to be this nice every year. Uh, when you have this, you're gonna you're gonna build up a lot of soil quality of soil health into that system that it can build it up where you can then uh, experience more resilience later on. Uh, soils have been beat to death typically over time, 
and uh, we're trying to build them up now with our crop rotation, diversity of species, and no disturbance. So it's a, it's a thing uh, that we may not have thought we could have done this kind of stuff before, and that's why I'm showing you this picture here with a field day. Uh, this is actually uh, fairly local to me at Penn State uh, Extension, where they have a research farm. And I remember when I started, uh, I started no-till back in the 80s, but I started talking about it in the 90s. And uh, the the research manager for this farm, I remember, I can distinctly remember because it impacted me because I, I kind of looked up to him because, you know, he was the, the researcher, you know, for agronomy-type crops. And he said, oh, I like what you're doing, Steve, down there in them rolling hills where you live, but it doesn't work here. Our clay content's too high, and we're not as well-drained. And uh, basically patting on my back saying, good job, but thank you very much, doesn't work. Well, when a new manager showed up, when he retired, somehow they found out that it worked. And that just comes down to understanding the principles of cover cropping and no-till. And I put this picture in there to tell that story, but uh, the man in the middle with his back to us, I should have got a better picture, I guess, but that is actually the Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture. And I put that in there to kind of make a point here, and he is, uh, uh, his name is Russell Redding, and he's very much on board with cover cropping, no-till, and all that. So to see this uh, evolution of thought, if you will, of what we thought, I'll just say, couldn't be done. Now it's being promoted at at the at an academic level and at a, from a political level. So there's two things going on there that I think is um, I just feel that it's it's just a good sign of our times. It validates what we're talking about in this group, and that is a farm that there is a heavier uh, clay soil, not the heaviest clay around, but it's heavier clay where they said it wouldn't work. So let's uh, talk a little bit practical here of what are some of the species that are probably thought of as the best for heavy clay soils. And I'll just say a little caveat here. This is if you can get them planted in a timely fashion. Um, and I this list is, is not exclusive here. And I would really like those of you to be thinking about, or if you want to type in the chat box, you can. What other species would you add here? I'm going to go down over them and just briefly say why they are some of the best for heavy clay soils. And I think you'll know the first two are the deep rooters, the radishes and annual ryegrass. They're the ones that get down and they are, they will eventually help with draining, drainage to be able to help drain the soil. And, um, and their radish maybe is a little weak on waterlogged soils, uh, but Again, that's why I say you got to be an opportunist. And when it works, when the weather is right, uh, radish does really good. And your ryegrass as well goes down very deep roots. Now, I listed sorghum sedan here, and I'm going to talk about this again a little later. I won't say much now, but if the summertime, let's say you had a prevent plant situation, uh, sorghum sedan is really good. Those roots are also very impressive. Um, but I listed Phasalia here, and you might wonder, those of you who know anything about Phasalia, it's certainly not a deep rooter. But the place for, for Phasalia in heavy clay soils is when you get a chance to, to plant that late summer, um, even early spring, if there's a whatever, if there's a window that opens up for that, it really re helps remediate soil that has been worked too wet or that has been beaten up. And typically we see that to be a problem in heavy clay soils. They were worked too wet or especially the wet spots. You're going to plant the whole field. You just want to get her done, get it in there. And some of that field may have been too wet or you just forced the issue and went in a little bit too wet. Phasalia can really help remediate the top portion of the soil. It's not a deep rooter. It's uh, I'm talking about the top four inches or so. There's there's just something about that. Um, and I want to mention yellow blossom sweet clover because I was trying to think, well, I didn't have any legumes there. And legumes are not necessarily noted to be aggressive deep rooters. 
I would put Yellow Blossom Sweet Clover in there as maybe one of the best. And if you ever saw it, someplace I know it kind of grows wild, but it it's almost looks like an alfalfa. Um, so if you can get Yellow Blossom Sweet Clover planted in a heavier clay soil, I think that's one of the better options uh, for for uh, that situation. I'm going to talk about some other ones later, but that's the ones I wanted to mention now. Um, since Vesalia is somewhat new for a lot of us, I just want to show you a picture. It kind of looks like a fern. It's a non-legume uh, broadleaf. That's just how the top uh, looks, just so you recognize it. But when you look at what it does to the soil, wow, it's just incredible what those fine roots are there. You can see and what it does for soil aggregation. And I've, I've learned about it in Europe, and it's one of the top five cover crops used in Europe. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it is, is they still do a lot of tillage uh, in Europe. And uh, this is one that helps remediate the, the detrimental effects of tillage. Uh, I pretty much want to have Vesalia uh, a pound or so in all the mixes that it makes sense for me anytime from September into October uh, here in southeastern PA. But that's one that's if you have a pretty beat up soil that's been worked too wet, if you can get that planted, that's going to be one that uh, that will really work well for you. Okay, now going into more of an equipment uh, side of things and some tactics and getting things planted. A lot of times the soil's wet, uh, just too wet to plant, and it, or it's too sticky uh, because of the high clay content. Uh, I want to talk about freeze seeding. Uh, freeze seeding is a method that we're going to be planting through lightly frozen ground. And in this picture here, there was a little bit of snow. As you can see, I've done this in the very late fall, early winter, in the very late winter uh, periods of time. Uh, and it, it's, it actually not every year may provide this opportunity, but in the fall, late fall, we could put like cereal rye in because that's gonna, that's tough enough. It's gonna, it's gonna hang around. If you get late enough, you can actually plant annual ryegrass in December and that's been working pretty good. It's a tough little seed that won't, you won't see it till, till later on in uh, late winter, early spring. And, or you can do this in the spring with spring oats or peas. Uh, early spring, of course, uh, but this is just a way to be able to get into those heavy clay soils so that it just doesn't gum up your planter, and and you actually you can actually do it and clog up your seed boots and and any of you have done this, it's frustrating when you're out there. Now you notice this picture here, uh, how it was taken at night, and that's because that was when it was fit to plant. I. Uh, also here, watch out for those wet spots. Uh, this is a little wet spot I went through one time. So, you know, if you have some deep wet spots, you don't want to sink your tractor, but you want to be aware of them. There's only so much, you know, of course, that the frost is going to take. So it's an idea. It's, you have to wait for the ideal time for, uh, for this to, for this to occur. Um, so, uh, all that being said, this is very strategic and it's like you watch the temperature. And you might have to go out in the field and see how, the, how frozen the ground is. Sometimes you can wait till the morning and plant till the sun comes up and it starts uh, melting off or whatever. So I'll just tell you a quick story. I started at 11 p.m. once and the temperature was dropping quickly. And by 2 a.m. I had to stop because the colders were starting to pop up out of the ground uh, because it was frozen uh, too much. So, uh, again, it's just an idea of a tactic when you when you're especially when you're working heavy clay soils. So another uh, aspect I want to uh, cover here is interseeding. And uh, if you're interested in interseeding, I have two or three topics. Go back and look at them. Uh, they're there. I'm not going to talk about the concept of interseeding. I'm just going to say this is an option here. And I just want to mention it. In areas where you may not be able to get a cover crop planted because your season's short, you're farther in the north, um, uh, I will just say right off the bat that interseeding is for probably your your poor yielding fields uh, high yielding fields who struggle to keep the seeds alive underneath there i'll just make that quick comment but on areas north of interstate 80 uh northern pennsylvania new york state out through wisconsin uh, michigan into minnesota and iowa 
those areas interceding is working up into Canada. Uh, so it seems like the northern latitudes, it works better. And we think one of the reasons is that it there's longer daylight. There's actually more light that gets in there. And I know this year, I know there's some people on the call here that are actually going to be using light meters and trying to figure out what the effect is. But uh, this is just some examples from central New York State. On the right, you see what was interceded. This would have been after corn silage came off. So this was back in, a, by I think it was the middle of November. And they actually had a pretty good fall. I actually took this in 2015, a couple of years ago. And actually, where they drilled it wasn't bad either, but you can see how much advancement they got there in the growth. And I wanted to mention, too, because uh, a lot of dairy country uh, that this covers, and this farmer was just tickled to death to be able to spread manure, a drag line in this case, uh, and, he, and he wasn't mucking up the soil. Uh, usually in the fall, you know, they're just mudding it in. And uh, because the cover crop was growing, not only did it take up the nitrogen right away, but it supported the tractor better. And uh, it's just really cool when it works out this way. Now, this would have been a interceding situation with corn silage. If you look close, you can see that. And um, there was there's some really uh, large operations in that area and, and further north and west that are making this work. Uh, I will say, though, it, it hasn't worked every single time. Uh, but in the northern areas, they're looking at above a 75% success rate and trying to fine-tune it to make the success rate be more consistent. But this is something, this is an area, this is definitely heavy clay soils. And they struggle to get in the ground sometimes uh, because of that fact. So um, just something they might want to consider there. So another area uh, that I want to cover here is in a prevent planting situation. Uh, there are some times where uh, it's just too wet to plant. Usually it's because of wet. A few times it's because it's too dry where you can't plant. And so then it gets too late to plant corn or soybeans. So then it's like, well, what do you do? Well, it's obvious you're going to plant a cover crop uh, because you have plenty of time. And so, this is one of those opportunities I was telling you about. If the unfortunate circumstance happens that you can't get a crop planted in the spring, let's just take this opportunity to take a deep breath and say, you know, I'm really going to hit my cover crops hard. And so I have a few things here, uh, suggestions here. If the planting window is fairly early, which it usually is in this situation, uh, yeah, you want to use radishes. That's going to help create drainage. Um, also, uh, oats for forage uh, or for more ground cover in the spring, if that's what you're going for. And I just put that in there because there are some 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 of us who are getting more into animals. I'm starting to mention that more uh, kind of as an aside. It seems like there's more interest in putting animals back in the land. And we got time then to plant things like sun hemp. But sorghum sedan is going to be a go-to. You want sorghum sedan. Uh, that's the aggressive grower in the summer, and its roots grew down deep. And you can mix a couple of these together. And um, I see Dan has mentioned in the chat here about sunflowers. Good point, Dan, on that. You're exactly right. So uh, that's just some of the more popular ones. And I do want to hear some of you add some more to this later on, or you can put them in the chat there if you want, because these are some of the ones I feel are, are more of the more popular ones and more important and so forth. But I, I also wanted to share something that I kind of discovered a couple years ago that to keep in mind. And this is kind of rare, but uh, after quite a bit of uh, thinking and testing and so forth, we, we, we had this situation where there were straight radishes planted on a prevent plant situation. And I wouldn't say this is the heaviest clay. Uh, but it was definitely uh, ground that did not dry out enough to get planted. Planted just radishes. Okay, it's important you know that. The next year, uh, corn was planted, and you see this classic sy sy uh, symptom here. Now, some of you smart Alex will say that's pioneer corn. I get that <laughs> because pioneer tends to throw some purplish leaves, but um, that's not the case here. Uh, I'll just just check that one off for you right away. Uh, but 
obviously looks like phosphorus deficiency. But the field tests showed at this stage, as we did some testing, that there's, there was a decent amount of phosphorus there. And, you know, we know early on sometimes phosphorus is not as available, but it shouldn't have shown this bad. Uh, <clears throat> but we came to a conclusion, and, and I can't say if it's 100% accurate, but we came to the conclusion that since it was a wet spring the previous year uh, to the point where there's actually water standing in some of this area, and then we planted radishes, <clears throat> mycorrhizae needs uh, – well, I'll just say this. Mycorrhizae does not do well when it's saturated for long periods of time with water. It can literally kill it off. And mycorrhizae is an important function in a fungi in a soil that actually takes phosphorus and uh, helps transport it into the plant. So our final theory on this was mycorrhizal populations were knocked down hard. We planted radishes, which are a non-host. For mycorrhizae, we weren't able to resuscitate it, if you will. Planted corn in there, and hence the phosphorus deficiency appearance. Uh, that's the conclusion that several agronomists and, and, and we came to in this situation. How could have we avoided that? We could have simply just put a little oats with it, uh, or sorghum sedam, which is that which is a mycorrhizal host, uh, and I and I think that would have remedied this problem. So this is a case for mixes, but it's also to tell you that if here's a combination here, heavy clay soil, wet, you can't plant, don't just plant radishes because you you may have, uh, you're kind of adding to, you're, you're not subjecting the opportunity like you should of rebuilding the mycorrhizae part of the equation here. So that's another case for mixes. So something I feel that uh, was important to share uh, that that is going to be helpful. Hey, regardless if this occurs or not, planting mixes over the summer to me is a no-brainer. You're always going to do it. <clears throat> There's some options there as discussed. Well, if things go a little bit later for whatever reason, um, there's some other options over here to plant. And um, I, I just put on the on the left-hand side there during the middle part of August, the middle part of September. And I'll just say that radish and phacelia, top and bottom, they, they undoubtedly will, will winter kill in most areas. Maybe not, uh, south of I-70, depending where you're at, uh, or in the southern states, they probably won't. Uh, crimson clover and hairy vetch, though, I put an asterisk there because you need to understand when you plant them earlier than we normally do, and if they grow over about a foot tall, they may winter kill. So if you're a farmer and you, you're excited about planting something early and you were counting on an overwintering hairy vetch or crimson clover, uh, because they put a lot of growth on, they almost smother themselves out over the winter in an area that typically they do survive. So it's something to keep in mind. And then our other planting dates here on the right-hand side I put in, uh, you can see them there. I have a question mark for radish. Uh, should probably put a question mark for salia. It depends where you're at, how late you can go. Uh, on them, but these are just some crops that are that are good. No strangers here to any of you, but just some crops that you can uh, put in the ground during those planting periods if you're really trying to help your soil out. <clears throat> I've heard this several times where you have a wet spot in your field, and for whatever reason you never got anything planted. Well, definitely you go in there with a with a nice cover crop mix in the summer, get some deep rooting action. And, and this happens sometimes where you can actually see a second year effect or a almost a forever effect that it opens up channels, uh, either to more effectively drain into tile or uh, simply just drain the field. So no guarantees that you're going to transform swamps into highly productive farmland, but I have seen and heard this working. I've heard many, many experiences of farmers. They get a good cover crop. And they can see a multi-year effect after that in wet areas. And that is, that is going to depend from area to area. There's a, there's a whole lot of, uh, variables to that. But, uh, something that, again, if you have the opportunity, don't waste it. Uh, that if you have growing time in the late summer, don't waste it. Um, uh, just a, another, I'm just, I'm wrapping up here. So get your questions ready. But, uh, this was a prevent plant in, in Iowa in, uh, I believe it was 2013, if I recall right, um, and and this is kind of what I'm talking about here. Uh, as you can see, there's some tillage done there, but they were taking advantage of this. But 
<clears throat> another uh, instance I want to just show you here is uh, th these radishes really do good for opening up the soil. And uh, again, this is actually from Iowa here, but I want to remind you to mix something else with the radishes. Um, and there's uh, several different options out there. Uh, the other thing just to uh, touch on a little different aspect, I wanted to mention strip tillage because strip tillage is used uh, more so in the heavy clay type soils. Uh, just because it takes more management to no-till and those soils and so forth. So uh, here's a strip-till rig that actually has a Valmar seeder on it where he is actually seeding cover crops on the strips as he's planting. And uh, here is how that field looks in the spring. I think that's pretty cool to see technology like this uh, and, and how different options out there. So um, don't know the history in this field, but I just wanted to just put that out there for anyone who it may be helpful. Or here is a solid seeded cover crop. Looks like cereal rye. Someone sent me this picture. I'm not sure what it is, but they're going in and stripping it in the spring. In this case here, they they were liked it because it helped dry their field out a little quicker, and then they wanted to uh, go back in with their strip tillage. So I'll just say one quick thing. If you're doing this, you've got to have a stripper is capable of making decent berms because of the root mass you're working with. That could be a challenge. So part of the challenges that, that can come along with that. And, I, and here is my final picture. I wanted to, to use this to show what I feel is possible. Um, this is from Dan DeSutter in Indiana. And it's not that he has the heaviest of clay soils is the reason I put this here. But I think this is a result that you can expect if you have no-till and a good cover cropping program. Those upper two left fields were well-managed for many years, and you have the, uh, the other fields there that are conventional till, but have uh, they do have draining. Now, this is, this is July the 22nd when this was taken in 2015, a very wet year. But I, I thought this is a good summary slide because – I think it's a realistic expectation under a well-managed system of what you can expect. And granted, I don't like to put timelines, how long will it take to do this, because there's way too many variables to predict that. But that's why I say well-managed, and then you got to catch some breaks from the weather. Um, I, I can't overemphasize that enough. Uh, things do have to work in your favor sometimes to be able to maximize uh, the potential. So with that, I'm going to uh, unmute everybody. I would like to hear some comments from you, uh, questions, comments, uh, what species did I miss, and that kind of thing. So who has the first? Uh, who has the first comment or question? Go ahead. Who has the first one? I have a question, Steve. Go ahead. I'm in <laughs> northern North Dakota, and I, the frost seeding intrigues me because we don't have a long enough season to do a lot of get a lot of cover crop growth behind wheat. Mm -hmm. um, so is there any other species, you mentioned ryegrass, but is there any other species that, that anybody's had success with on frost seed? Well, I, 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 I use the term freeze seed. You mean planting through frozen ground, lightly frozen ground, right? That's what you're referring to, right? Correct. Cereal rye, I mentioned, if you're wheat country, you won't, you don't, you probably don't want to hear that one. Uh, I get that. Uh, and, and the same maybe for annual ryegrass, maybe that's why you're asking for other options. I don't know if you're uh, open to hairy vetch or not, but uh, later on in December, we're getting some pretty strong varieties now that there's some varieties of hairy vetch that will work. You have to think about the tough seeds. Uh, I've tried peas in December, and they just rot. It, it I figured it would, but it so, so you're going to go with the tough little seeds. So think about that. Um, in, in that aspect. And that's why annual ryegrass works well. Of course, cereal rye, I could add triticale in there too. A lot of them varieties would, would, would stand it. Um, crimson clover, again, doesn't seem to have the, the toughness of the seed to carry over in a situation like that. So, uh, any suggestions from anybody else? Uh, maybe people from the northern climates that, that would be able to chime in on another option? Any other suggestions? I would say talk to some. I, I, I know there's like a, a North Dakota club or whatever that's that's kind of like borders Canada and, and North Dakota that 
I don't know if you know about that or not, uh, but that might be something you want to look into, Nathan, to, to have some discussions on, on maybe some try on trying some things like that. Yeah, the Mandak Zero Till Association went belly up here last oh, year, which bummer. they were great. That oh, was that's... Manitoba and North Dakota. And... Oh, well, yeah. there's there's actually another one. I'll write it down here. Maybe I can. I I know I can't think of it off the top of my head now. They've been doing some research. I know that it's it's actually for Northern North Dakota. It sounds like that's where you're from. Um, yes. So I I'll I'm jotting that down here. Maybe I can I can dig that up and see if I can put you in touch with those people. Okay, well, that's a great, great question. Um, other comments, other questions here on our topic today? Anybody? Steve, this is Marty. Uh, wondering about putting vetch with cereal rye. Mm-hmm. Does it nodulate enough to give you a nitrogen credit the following year for corn? If you, my experience of hairy vetch and cereal rye, and I'll just say I have over 20 years' experience with it, uh, it really does help the rye, of course. They, it shares a little bit. Uh, but the, but the rye will take up a lot of what it produces. It depends sometimes in the ratio, but let's just say for the sake of your question, we'll just say it's about a, uh, well, when I say 50-50, that doesn't really equate to seeding rates, but let's just say plant for plant. It's about 50-50. Uh, yes, it will, div- there will be a net gain of, uh, nitrogen that you can credit some. But then again, it really depends when you're terminating it. Because if the rye is terminated late, it's not going to give much, if any, at all back in time for corn. If it's terminated earlier on, the rye is going to give you a little nitrogen in July or August, but the vetch won't have fully uh, matured to its potential. So, you know, there's some trade-offs there and when you're, when you're terminating it. Uh, I grow hairy vetch and rye as the foundation for, for a couple species for my pumpkins. And I usually credit about 40 pounds from a hairy vetch rye, but that's, that's in bloom and not just first bloom, that's in half bloom or more. So I'm, I'm crediting at 40 pounds at that stage. Now, you know, it's, it's adding to the, my overall pool of nitrogen even for later on because a lot of times I'll come back with wheat. And uh seems like I don't need any nitrogen in the fall at all to get that wheat over all the way into maybe a side dress application in the spring. So that's been my experience um, in that. I don't know if anybody else has any comments on that or experience or not. Anyone else work with Harry Vetch and Rye? Okay. Uh, I know that we have um, uh, Bob Betts on from uh, Western New York State and also Erie, Pennsylvania area. Bob, I don't know if you want to comment. On uh, on your situation, um, Bob is actually uh, grows wine grapes. Uh, he has vineyards, and and uh, just talking to to him before we came on here, and I said, "Do grapes even grow in heavy to clay soils?" And he said, "Most of his farm is that." So I'm learning new stuff all the time. So do you have any comments here, Bob, for what we talked about today, or just some comments? Well, we grow. Yeah, we grow Concord grapes. That's mainly for juice and jellies, okay. and also wine. Okay. But um, I've uh, I raise uh, uh, green rye and red clover and peas. Okay. In some of my covers. Okay. And the two years I let it grow up to roll crimp it, it was dry. Oh. So dry that I probably hurt my a little bit. Okay. The very first year it was wet, oh. so it did help dry my ground out quite a bit. Okay. So you would. I alluded to that during my presentations that if it gets dry, you may terminate a little sooner. Is that correct? Well, I'm learning that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all learning, but yeah, that's that's typical. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, uh, Jackie. Right? Go ahead. What's your question? Yeah, this is uh, this is Jackie. I'm an I'm an extension agent. I was just going to say that um, we we did some TDR probing for soil compaction mm-hmm. uh, with and without cover crops, and in the clays, we we really noticed it, it did a lot of good in terms of breaking up that that compaction by the tractor tires and and the harvesters that we use mm-hmm. to pick the grapes are pretty heavy too. So mm-hmm. you know that sort of benefit can't go unnoticed as well. Oh wow! Well, that's. And that's going to transfer into agronomic crops. So that's, I mean, I'm not surprised you said that, but that's always nice to verify what we think is going on in theory. So, uh, so that's cool. Uh, Jackie, do you have any more comments on our talk today? I know this isn't directed specifically to growing grapes, but 
a lot of the principles I'm assuming carry over. Yeah, no, I, I think this is great information, uh, especially about getting out there with a shovel and, and making mm-hmm. sure you're visually appraising what's going on, because that's the only way to really know is to get out in your fields and, and check it out. So Yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but uh, Kabir, Kabar, Kabir from uh, uh, UC da- or the NRCS in Davis, California. I don't know if uh, you have any thoughts on this or not. I'm just checking. You might have some. Yeah, go ahead, Kabir. No, I think I'm. I'm. I don't have much experience with this uh, okay. heavy soil, but okay. I did work in uh, in in at Penn State, uh, oh, yeah. the, right. the research station you're talking about. Okay. And I did couple of cover crops work over there, and like you know oats, rye, yeah. and on on that soil, and also I did with the buckwheat and okay. and I think it was winter wheat. Okay. But all of them works pretty good. You know, I didn't have any issue with the germinations, okay. and also we didn't apply any phosphorus in there. For barley yep. crop, like sweet corn was growing, and they're growing pretty good. Okay, good. Uh, any other comments? I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of open it up here for any cover crop question there is, but I'm just gonna put up here next week's webinar. Look at that picture there. I hope this isn't the case, <laughs> but I kind of I have a I have a a list of topics you know four or five ahead, but sometimes you got I gotta like you know go to What's relevant, and just just knowing where we're headed here, there's going to be a lot of wet fields. And I thought, well, let's talk about that next week. So next week we're going to talk. The title I gave it was "Keys to Adapting to Mother Nature's Timetable," and we're going to focus again <clears throat> a little bit more. Uh, and, and it's it's you could say it's a little related to today's topic, and, and yeah, it is. But I want to hone in a little bit more. What are we going to do here? Uh, how do we make management decisions with cover crops when they haven't grown as long as as much as they have? You know, when do you decide how dry is it dry enough to go ahead and plant? So I'm going to tackle some of those questions next week. I just want to let you know that. Uh, but for uh, for the rest of our time here, what other cover crop questions might you have? Any cover crop questions at all that you've been thinking about this past week or whatever? I see Brent's asking here about a webinar for light soils. Yeah, I, I'll uh, I got that down, Brent. That's good. That's 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 going to come up. Uh, and I'll, I'll t- on that note, I'll take uh, any other suggestions you have. I want to put out in Facebook and uh, and on email here for to invite suggestions for topics, uh, just so we're making sure I'm not forgetting something. But uh, thanks for that, Brent. But yeah, any questions at all from from anyone um, on anything on cover crops? Yeah, Steve. I guess yeah. I have a question. Uh, Hi, we have been talking. Uh, how you doing? Hey, yeah. we've been talking about black oats for a while. Oh yeah. Um, what are you seeing with black oats? Can we do it here in the spring, and maybe get get a crop off before we plant tobacco, or uh, are we pushing our luck? Of course, well, it's late spring. Okay. Just for the rest of you know, Herb is my neighbor, so um, I'll talk to you as a neighbor here. Herb. Um, I did plant four acres for another neighbor. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, that's intended to be before squash are planted in the middle of June. So we can watch that. Uh, last year I did a couple different fields of black oats. I would say if that's going to be done, we got to do that this week in order to be uh, worthwhile. So if that's the idea for some of these guys that want to have tobacco, they're going to want to no-till the tobacco into the black oats, I'm assuming. Um, either way, either plow it down or work it up and, and yeah, either way. I'm just wondering if we, if we have enough time to uh, get oats in here now and, and get a cover crop off for it. Well, I look at the calendar and it's April the 10th and it feels like yeah. March the 10th. Uh, but that's going to change this weekend for us. But then I'm not sure what the next two week forecast is. But, uh, all that being said, we're running, we're starting to run out of time for that to be worthwhile is my straight up answer. Uh, that's why I said if you can get it in this week yet and maybe we can get it germinated this weekend, I would mix uh, 40, 50 pounds of peas with it unless there's a lot of manure on that ground uh, just to help it along as well. With black oats with the uh, little more cold tolerant, that would be a better choice than and maybe plant it early, be a better choice than regular forage oats? I don't think that cold tolerance makes any difference anymore. 
Okay. I, think any, I, I don't think you're going to – I don't think there's an advantage that I'm aware of, unless you're talking forage, there could be a forage advantage to black oats. They seem to be looking really good, but uh, that's all I'll say on that. They seem to be looking really good if that's if that's something that uh, they're trying to do. Okay. So very good. Yeah. Other questions? Go ahead, Brent. Uh, on on intercropping, I'm looking at doing ten acres of of uh, intercropped cover crops into my into my non-GMO corn. I'm looking to, to drill about ten acres with a John Deere 750 drill just before the corn emerges. Okay. And, also over overseed or just you know spin on another ten acres at about B three or four when the corn is up. Do you have any recommendations on a on a on a mix that would work here in north central Iowa to, to out compete weeds and um and uh promote mycorrhizal fungi growth and, and to come up and look nice after uh, after the after the corn is harvested and to provide weed control for the twenty nineteen beans. Boy you're asking a lot there, Brent. You're asking a lot, <laughs> but, but, oh, but, you asked. <laughs> that's right. No, I, I would say that, uh, go slow on that. Uh, I do know of some of that stuff being tried. I'm keeping on monkey and around with it. The trick is the first thing you had mentioned there about drilling after planting. I know some guys have tried subterranean clover because it tends to be low growing. It's a nitrogen producer. I've heard of the white ladino type clover, again, low producer, uh, and it doesn't have as, that doesn't have as deep of a root that hopefully the corn will get a hole. But the big concern is if you would happen to have a dry May or dry early June, boy, that, that corn is just going to be competing directly with your cover crops. So that's, that, that and, and, and maybe it's just about assuming the risk, uh, that this may be. And that's why I said go slow. I mean, 10 acres is small to you. That's great. Uh, as far as the V3, anything from there and later, what we have seen in our interceding work is we go down to about V3 and we don't seem to have any corn yield hits. Now, a yield hit, it's one thing if it's five bushel. It's another thing if it's 25 bushel. And I would say it this way your risk is going to be higher with the species planted early. And I, I listed some suggestions as far as coming in there at V3, then the, the popular ones are annual ryegrass, crimson clover, and radishes. That seems to be the most popular. There's hairy vetch sometimes thrown in there, and there's now some uh, cowpeas, and uh, there's other crops. Uh, there's quite a few that are being tried. None of them that I can tell you are kind of, rising to the top with consistency. Just because you hear of someone who is successful one year with a cover crop species and interseeding doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere. We know that, but I'm just reminding us of that. Um, so I would say it's fine for you to try that, Brent, but uh, <clears throat> and, and then if it works this year, we'll work next year. Um, I'm just trying to be straight up with you. What I've tried, what I've known other people tried, but I will say this, in the context of what we are all are collectively learning, I think we need to keep fiddling around with this kind of stuff because we know that there's synergies among various plant species when they grow together. It just happens to be, you know, we pay our bills by uh, growing a uh, a cash crop, whatever that may be. So at, at the end of the year, that's going to have to pencil out. So I'm really liking some of these suggestions on some of these companion cropping where we're actually growing multiple cash crops together. And that's another topic for another day because then the, then it's kind of your, your, your different approach. But to, in order not to inhibit your cash crop too much, but also to reap the benefits you may get, that's a pretty fine line. Some things are out of your, out of our control at this point. I would say if you have irrigation, then the risk is a lot lower. There's some cura clover that has been used and studied in, I believe, Wisconsin or Michigan. That That's kind of more of a perennial situation that people were trying to do that. I know that Pennington Seed at one time had a certain clover that they were trying to do some of this stuff with where they're just spraying out like a uh, narrow band. I'm not sure where that's at now, but I think you can see it on their website. So that might be some things for you to look into, Brent. Am I answering your question or, or am I missing it? Yeah, no, that's a great. All, all those things that I understand, I think it might turn out to be a, a two-step system. We can get something growing low under the corn canopy that will hang out there, 
mm-hmm. and then maybe uh, come back and either uh, broadcast in with a Hagee mm-hmm. at, at when the corn's drying down or when the corn is harvested yeah. and come back and drill in yeah. like a, a cereal run along with whatever we had early. Yeah. Yeah, the, the biggest risk is going to be the earlier planted stuff right before corn emergence. And I know you're trying to help it compete with weeds, but, boy, that's, that you know, it depends on your field history, a lot of factors there. So uh, other questions from anybody? Any cover crop question? Any comments? I have a question from the U.K. It's George. Oh, I didn't notice you were on today. Oh, welcome aboard. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, it's actually quite similar to the last uh, the last question. Um, we're growing corn or maize on 20-inch rows. And okay. I've, we've got a front bar that we can sow at the sort of six to eight leaf stage. We can sow between the maize. So it's a similar yep. Yep. question to the previous one. We obviously... We don't struggle for water, and we we don't get that hot here. So maize out competing the interrow for water is never really an issue. We're on very uh, heavy clay soils, but yeah. um, there's not much of this done in Europe. Our main reason for wanting to do it is actually when they forage the, the uh, corn, okay. um, reducing the damage um, caused at harvest. So I want to try and make the tractors and trailers run on right green and not on the soil um, yes. and people are saying try Italian ryegrass but I'm not sure what to put in between the rows and I'm very nervous about how that might impact the, the biomass we produce as well. Well when you say Italian ryegrass I know there's different types of ryegrasses and I'm not sure which are, which are all available in the UK um, but that you know we usually just identify it as annual ryegrass uh, that seems to be one of the most popular ones because it actually does a pretty good job at what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to build soil structure to mitigate any damage created by the heavy harvesting equipment. And that was some of the, in the middle part of my presentation when I, I mentioned that, that annual ryegrass, crimson clover, and radishes tend to be the three popular crops. The radishes help to open up the soil later on and the, the crimson clover gives you some, um, you know, some nitrogen production there. So when I was over in Belgium here about uh, three weeks ago, I saw they were testing some of that uh, in Belgium. And I believe that even might have been 20-inch 20, 20 corn now. But um, they were actually doing a little different roundabout. They were planting wheat. No, they planted uh, – I'm sorry. They planted, um, they planted a, a white uh, – like a low-growing white clover – and that was successful, and then they planted wheat into it, and they wanted that clover to survive under the understory of the wheat. So that was pretty novel uh, idea there. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm giving you some roundabout answers there, but so you actually do have equipment that you are you be able to put the seed in the ground, or are you just broadcasting the seed between your 20 inch rows? No, well as you probably know, we 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 build equipment as well, so I've okay. got the luxury of being able to tinker with things. But we've got some like long drop disc cultures where we can. Uh, okay. You can get him to props. I'm hoping the establishment. Good. Well, uh, just a quick question. Um, if you're able to post any of those pictures on the uh, Facebook page, that would be really neat for the rest of us to see what you're doing. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a new member, so I'll well, welcome aboard. I would. We'd be glad to glad to see what you're what you're doing in that. So great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Any anyone else? Um, Got another got time for like one more question if you guys have it. Any other question? Okay. If not, thanks again for your attention. I appreciate all the questions that come up, and uh, you guys have a great week. Hopefully things will warm up and dry out, and uh, we'll plan to see you next week.